following presentation is part of a six-week class titled Introduction to Mindfulness. The class is offered at Common Ground Meditation Center, Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So I'll just uh, review some of the basic instructions, then we'll sit for about 30 minutes, then we'll do a check-in. Then I want to talk a little bit, maybe say 10 minutes, 15 minutes, to talk a little bit about a couple models from the Buddhist tradition that helps us sort of understand the place for practice, a sense of why we're practicing and where we're going with the practice. And for some people, that's quite useful. So I'll go through that and then cover some of the material in the week two, three handout that you got last week. So... You might have surmised by now that the basic intention in practice is really this, it's a paradigm shift. Normally in life, our allegiance, you know, the allegiance of our heart or our view has to do with controlling the conditions in the moment in our life. And we have a very deep-seated view or idea that happiness comes when I'm able to control or make things the way that I want them to be. And that also involves protecting myself from the things I don't want. We do this internally with our different mind states and memories, like how do we protect ourselves from the memories we don't want to arise? How do we hold on to the memories and thoughts we do like? And we do it externally in terms of our relationships and our environments. And we, in a sense, we define success, our own and other people's success, by whether we've been good at managing, manipulating, controlling, fixing the different conditions that make up our life, our life experience. And clearly, there's, you know, a place in life for this engagement. But one of the things as we're more awake, more mindful in life, one of the things that we detect is it's stressful to always having to manage the conditions of the moment. Managing other people's perceptions of us, managing my own perceptions of other people and holding it all together in all the different ways we feel obliged to hold it all together, holding together our views. Like, whether we're conscious of it or not, we're always massaging the facts of the moment to fit our ideas. If we have a particular idea or belief that common ground is this kind of place, then no matter what's happening, the mind is trying to make the different data points being here tonight, fit our view. This is the basic downside of having fixed views, is that the mind, in a sense, becomes dependent on the view in the mind and feels threatened when experience doesn't line up with our view. And so that creates tension too. So this is what I would call the ordinary allegiance of an ordinary person, which is, that means us most of the time. And then we come across these teachings and the Buddha points out a different way of being. So instead of being 
in allegiance to controlling, fixing, managing. So it's a very much uh, about doing. Like I've got to do something in order to make, in order to go to towards happiness. And happiness in this first mode is always out there when I finally get it all together, get it all under control, get rid of all the bad stuff and lock down all the good stuff. So it's always out there a little bit. And even when we're in a pretty good place, we still have that obligation of having to lock it down so it doesn't change. Or maybe it could be even better. You see, so there's, it's an unstable place. Now there's another allegiance we can have. So instead of this emphasis on doing, manipulating, controlling, fixing, managing, we could have, it's like a, an actual refuge for the mind in understanding. So it doesn't mean that we're not engaged in doing different things, saying different things. We're still engaged in the world. But the emphasis, the refuge, is in understanding the way that it is. And it sounds like, well, what's actually the difference here? And it's really, uh, really is about view. So we're cultivating a view, or you could say cultivating a value of understanding. And this understanding doesn't depend on clinging or managing or manipulating or fixing. So if there is any of that going on, then that's what's being understood in the moment. Right? Because the value is on understanding, not on getting somewhere, becoming somebody, fixing something, getting rid of something. It's on understanding. Oh, trying to fix something is like this. Trying to make this person like me is like this. So in a way, we're putting all our our whole heart, all our cards, in the basket of wanting to understand things as they are. Wanting to understand the moment as it actually is. As opposed to thinking, you know, not that we're even conscious of this bit, when we're controlling, fixing, manipulating, reacting, it's always based on an unconscious assumption that we know what we're doing. We know what actually leads to happiness. That's why we trust that kind of what I would call neurotic action. Is it just, it's implied that we know what we're doing, that this will actually lead to happiness. Like when you do something and that makes me angry and I react and I say something or just steam in, in my own silence, you know. So no matter how I react to your action that made me angry, there's some unconscious sense that my anger is functional, like it's getting me somewhere that's good. And if we really saw how dysfunctional it is, the mind would let go. So by taking this, by cultivating this emphasis on understanding, the clear seeing, or what we call insight, then we're aligning not with some idea we have about ourselves or some idea we have about what's good or bad, but it's not rejecting ideas of good and bad either, because then the idea of good and bad is bad. So it's just, it's just stepping out of that whole mode, that whole dualistic mode of good and bad, me getting somewhere, me wanting to become something, me wanting to get rid of something, 
It's stepping out, and it's just understanding that world. Oh, that world is like this. In this moment, this mind-body, this experience is like this. And you see how they're very different worlds, like seemingly parallel universes, but completely different universes. You know, one, the mind is really fixated, wrapped up in good and bad, me and you, all these different notions, concepts. And the other world, the mind is not immune or is not sort of unaware of concepts, but it's in the mode of understanding that it's like this. Concept, a thought, a belief, an attachment is just something that's like this now. It's just something to be known in the moment, not something to believe in and then act out of. So then, when you understand that, then it's easy to understand, like, why we might sit and be present with the body sensations, or be present with the breath moving in the body, or some people might be using hearing as your main anchor. Because then when you're sitting, and you're aware that hearing is like this, or breathing in is like this, breathing out is like this, it's not like you're trying to get somewhere with the breath. It's not that you're practicing manipulating the breath or making it perfect. Instead, we're practicing this new way of being where the allegiance is with understanding, clearly understanding in a present moment sense that the in-breath in this moment is like this. So it's a whole different way of being in the world. Almost always through our life, our way of being in the world has been driven by our, not our ideas that we have, but the attachment or the identification the mind has with our ideas. So ideas or thoughts inherently aren't good or bad. In a Buddhist sense, what's bad is when the mind gets confused by a thought. So there's a thought, I really like this Buddhist practice. And if the mind gets identified with this thought, then all of a sudden when you're meditating, you're going to be energetically leaning forward, like, I really want to get this. I want to be the best meditator in the room, you know, or whatever we might think. We can't just let the practice unfold because now that the mind is identified with being a Buddhist meditator, then we have this huge weight. We've just constructed a sense of self with this huge weight on his or her shoulders. I've got to accomplish this. I want to accomplish this. I'm afraid of not being good at this. I'm a, I'm a fearful of not understanding how to do it. Or maybe this isn't the best place to do it. Maybe there are better places. When I go home, I'll check. And it just, we spend all of our time reacting to the notions that the mind creates because the mind is identified. Now, if the mind's not identified and that thought arises, I'm a Buddhist practitioner. I'm probably really good at this, or I'm not really good at this. The mind's not confused. It just knows that's just a thought. And when it has that sort of, I'm not very good at this, the mind recognizes, oh, yeah, that's the tendency of the mind to think it's not very good, or if you think you're the best. Oh, that's the tendency of the mind in this kind of situation to think that it's better than others. And that's like this now. So we're not confused by the thoughts. We're aware of them. The mind, of course, the whole practice is all about being present or intimate with the way that it is. 
But the difference is the mind's not clean, not identified. So the Buddha summed up his practice by saying things like, the supreme liberation has been discovered by the Tathagata. That's a word he used to refer to himself, sometimes translated as the one thus gone, which is sort of an interesting name to give yourself, the one thus gone. <laughs> but anyway, he said, the supreme liberation has been discovered, namely, liberation through non-clinging. So that's a very simple, direct summation of what we're doing here. And although there are a lot of differences among the, the different schools of Buddhism, you know, just by nature, where they came from, the different cultures, they all come down to this basic value of non-grasping, non-clinging, non-attachment, non-identification. Living a very full, engaged life without the attachment, the grasping, the clinging, without holding, or without the mind being fixed on anything. It seems we have to be fixed on ideas in order to be a human being, but it's just not so. And that's partly what we're learning. So when we're sitting, first we start with something easy, like something physical, like the breath, sensations of the body, hearing. But then as we're present with the breath, let's say, the breath is coming and going as a, you know, just that physicality, feeling that touching as the air goes in and out of the nostrils, or feeling the belly, the abdominal wall expand and contract. And we're there, aware of it as a natural, physical happening. And the mind, whatever thoughts arise about the breath, like I'm no good at it, or I am good at it, or why are we doing this, then the mind just recognizes, well, that's just a thought being known. And this is just an in-breath being known, and an out-breath is being known, and the in-breath is being known, and the out-breath is being known. And then if something else happens, the mind is already in the mode of just recognizing this next event, this next experience, as something being known. And now this is being known, and then this is being known. Now, this can be done whether we're sitting still, but it also can be done engaging the world in a more you know, direct way. So it isn't dependent on sitting still in a quiet space, but it's easier to learn it in that setting. Because you could be engaged in a conversation and also be aware in this reflective way, this is just something being known. My own emotions that are arising in this conversation, just something being known. Hearing what the other person is saying, is just something being known. Thinking that I should respond, that's just a feeling or an idea being known. And it's not like you have to say that to yourself. It's more a reflection or a recognition that it is being known. See, right now, if I asked you what's real, you know, a question like that, you could go in two directions depending on your allegiance. If your allegiance is still with your ideas about things... You would say, well, I'm here at Common Ground Meditation Center, you know, and I'm interested in meditation, I'm taking this class. Or, if you're in a practice mode, and someone asks you, you know, how is it, or what's real, the experience would be very different. The understanding, I should say, would be very different. Because you might, you know, what's real is maybe pressure, you know, 
because in that moment the mind is tuned into the six bones, making contact with the chair or the cushion. Or if you're feeling some shame, then the reality of the moment might be shame is like this. Shame is being known. Or if you think it's a stupid question and you're averse to the whole thing, you might notice that. Oh, there's a version in the mind, it's like this. So you're not, you're really interested in the direct, immediate reality, not the mind's habit of interpreting the reality in terms of some story that involves me and you and this and that and good and bad. And that very strong habit of the mind immediately going to its thinking, its conceptual overlay, is the cause of so much stress. Because the identification with our thoughts or concepts causes a distancing from the moment as it actually is, which causes us to be less and less skillful in how we respond moment by moment, which makes life more and more frustrating, which drives or reinforces the tendency to overthink, be attached to our thoughts, be identified, endlessly proliferating, worrying, planning, which makes the heart, the mind, less connected, less immediate, less present, less clearly aware of how it is. So our responses are even more ineffective, dysfunctional, having nothing to do with the way that it is, because they're really coming out of our thoughts about things, not the direct experience. Now, in the course of the last three weeks, you know, there's this emphasis on physical sensations, like using the breath as an anchor, using the predominant sensations of sitting as your anchor, or using hearing. And just to choose one of those three as your primary anchor. So when you're confused, or as you're getting started at the beginning of your sit, you offer this anchor to your mind. You say, honey, here's something you can pay attention to. You could worry, you could plan, you could think about your to-do list, you could wonder what people think about you, or wonder what opinions you have about other people. You could do literally an infinite number of things. But I'm going to give you this thing to do as a very beautiful gift. Because if you do this wholeheartedly, if you know the breath coming in, and then know the breath going out so fully, without any gaps, you will get a profound vacation from what you normally do. And that will be a very useful insight to have. Just that alone, just to be with the breath 100% for a few seconds, is really a profound, initially earth-shattering insight that for a period of time, my mind doesn't have to to be obsessed with self-drama. It can just put that down. So when you sit down at home or come to the center to sit, at the very beginning, as you're, after you've settled your body and you're in, in a kind of nice, stable, relatively comfortable posture on the chair, on the cushion, then you either consciously or, I mean, just verbally, like talking to yourself in your mind, or non-verbally, one way or another, though, you have to remind yourself that this is a period of time when it's really okay, for this 30 minutes, this 45 minutes, this whatever, it's really okay to put down the world. 
the world of me and you and good and bad. Now, our mind's still going to go there, of course, because there's a great momentum to think and worry and plan and compare and judge and everything else. But then when it goes there, because of this resolve that we made at the beginning, we're more likely to recognize it and more likely to very quickly say, Honey, you don't really need to do that. You will be safe not doing that for 30, 40, whatever minutes. It's really okay. So come back. Here, remember you've got this nice thing. You can just be aware of the next inner outbreath. Or you can just be aware of the predominant sensations of sitting. Or you can be aware of the experience of hearing. Get, practice giving yourself fully to that knowing as a refuge, as a way to support putting down what you normally do. Wouldn't, like even if you've never had the experience, wouldn't it be interesting to see what it's like for the mind not to be caught in thought? Like what is that experience? Not to be tight due to the mental content that's moving through the mind. What is it like to be fully present without fear or greed in the mind? That's why we use neutral experiences like breathing. For most people, maybe if you had asthma your whole life, it's a charged experience. But for most people, breathing is not a charged experience. Initially, before your body begins to hurt, feeling your body sitting is not a charged experience. When you're sitting in a quiet space, sound is not a charged experience for most people. So we're... We're doing something that's not our habit. Normally we ignore what's neutral. That's a big habit, surprisingly powerful, that habit, to not pay attention to what's neutral. So we have to, that's where you're getting a pep talk. You have to inspire yourself to pay attention to what's neutral, but not in a way that creates tension, you know, like leaning forward to be the best meditator, or leaning forward because Mark told you it's important to pay attention to what's neutral. You want to stay relaxed. Because I don't have to do anything with my attention to know the next in-breath. The next in-breath will be known as long as the mind is not distracted. The experience of sitting will be known as long as the mind is not distracted. Hearing will be known as long as the mind is not distracted. So the work is not to pick up distraction. The work is not to try to hear or to try to feel the body or to try to feel the breath. We don't need that kind of effort. That just makes it like trying to feel the breath. We just, that's what we do. We tighten the body. It's a, it's just one of those funny neurotic things that we've picked up along the way where when we want to feel like we're doing something, we just make the body tight. The mind and body get tight. But actually, it doesn't help you know the breath to be tight. So we're reminding the body to be relaxed. And then, no matter how many times the mind wanders off of the breath or whatever your anchor, your anchor is, you just bring it back. And it wanders, you bring it back. And it wanders, and you bring it back in a loving, patient, relaxed way. Because it doesn't help to get frustrated or tight about it. It doesn't help. In the same way, for those of you who have children or those of you who have taken care of puppies, it doesn't help to get tight around them either like when the puppy's doing what it's not supposed to be doing or the kitten is scratching on something that's not supposed to be scratching on. Has it ever helped to get tight? No, it just makes the child or the pet neurotic. And we get neurotic. 
And then it's not a good scene, in the long, long run especially. But if we're persistent, so we still want to be persistent, but in a really relaxed way. And actually, you can be more persistent the more relaxed you are. You just won't miss it as much. But generally, if we try too hard, we're good for a while, and then we're exhausted because it, it was exhausting to be so vigilant, so tight, so worried. And then we give up. You know, we just want to quit. So we have that anchor. But the nice thing about getting some continuity with your primary anchor is it makes it easier and easier to see all the more subtle stuff that's coming and going in your field of experience. The, ultimately, what's most important is mindfulness of the mind. But the mind is so much more subtle than the body. The body is relatively concrete. Those of you who've tried some walking meditation, I'll talk about that tonight after the sit, know that walking meditation, one of the great advantages of walking meditation is the anchor is so obvious. When we lift and place the foot, it's like relatively easy for the mind to be present with that and to keep remembering that. But when we're when the body is perfectly still and we're relaxed and let's say we have some tranquility, then it can be a little bit it's just so our experience is so subtle it's very easy to fall asleep. So we have to, as your practice is developing, you have to make this transition where you become, the mind becomes more and more interested in the mind itself, what the mind is doing. So you may be aware of the breath coming in. You may be aware of the breath going out. You're feeling that simple touching as the air goes in the nostrils and that simple touching as the air goes out of the nostrils. But actually what's more and more predominant or worthy of attention isn't the touching, but you're not ignoring that touching as the air goes in and out, but you're now more and more aware of what is it like in the mind to have a continuity of mindful awareness. We call that like the unification, or the Pali word is samadhi, when the mind collects itself, so going from being scattered, distracted, to being fully present in a continuous way. That is something to know. And even though the means to that continuity or that stability of attention is being aware of the breath going in and going out, you're also going to be noticing the fullness of the attention, the stability of the attention. It's like the mind becomes very solid in a really beautiful way, not in in a hard way. Like, boom, right there, grounded centered, and at the same time, really light, because the effort is nicely in balance, not too little, not too much. So this whole unification of mind, you start to notice. In the same way that if the mind's gone off into a worry, and you come back to the breath, and goes off to the worry, you come back to the breath, it goes off to the worry, and that third time, so seductive, you're just there for three or four minutes, caught in your thoughts, one thought leading to the next, and the thoughts, because they're provocative, they're charged, there's a sort of an equal expression in the body, you know, so there's an intense emotion, and there's intense sensation in the body, some kind of contraction in the body, right? And you're going on and on like that for a few minutes, and then there, and then, because of your practice, there's a moment of mindfulness, and you realize, oh, worrying is like this, Right? So in that moment, then, we'll feel the momentum of that thinking 
in the body. So you may not be able to go back to the breath immediately because what the charge that's been set up in the body from thinking in that way, it may need some attention for a while. Oh, tightness, contraction is like this. Can this be okay? So you're encouraging the mind to just be stable and steady and you're letting the leftover contraction in the body be the object of awareness for a while. Basically, for as long as it's really provocative. Because, you know, if you come back and you're not really aware of that charge in the body, that charge in the body is going to trigger that same thought again. But if you're present with it and you know it's just this yucky feeling in the body, it's just this yucky feeling in the body, can this be okay? It's just sensation being known, can this be okay? And again, you don't need to be saying all this in your mind, but you might, from time to time, when, especially when you're losing your stability, you might use a phrase like that. Oh, it's just sensation being known. It's just unpleasant sensation being known. Can this be okay? Because that might help stabilize your practice. Eventually, like everything in the world, it will go away on its own. Not because you want it to go away, but because it had a certain amount of momentum. And when that momentum is over, that experience goes away. Think about how many of experiences have come and gone in our lives. Literally, I mean, countless. Every experience that's going to come in the future, if you remember that it will go away, it will be very helpful. Because otherwise you're going to think, neurotically, you've got to make it go away. But you don't. The next time you have a strong desire, just watch it with mindfulness until it goes away. And you'll see desire, even really strong lust, will go away without you doing anything. Like, you don't have to gratify it for it to go away. It goes away on its own. Everything that arises has its own, like, head of steam. If it's got a lot of steam, it will last for a little bit longer. If it has not much steam, it will go away almost instantaneously. It's there, and then it's gone. So that's probably enough. Any questions before we sit? We'll stretch out in just a moment. I'll just check in. There will be time after the sit to check in some more. So why don't you stretch out your legs so you'll be comfortable sitting for about 30 minutes. You can even stand for a few seconds if you want. So whenever you're ready... In a loving and mindful way, take care of your body, come into a stable posture. making the body tight and just check in about the integrity of the spine ears are over the shoulders nose in line with the navel belly soft 
face is also relaxed. You can have your eyes slightly closed or a little open, gazing down toward the floor, whatever seems to help. And you might find it useful to take a couple long, <clears throat> easy, deep breaths in and out. As if we have all the time needed to slowly fill and then slowly empty the lungs. Maybe one more time completely. And eventually allow the breath to continue on its own. And you might find it useful at the beginning of the set to take a minute or two to be mindful of hearing, even if it's not your primary anchor. It's a way of remembering the spacious, receptive quality of the mind. Noticing how effortless it is to be hearing. Hearing just happens. Can the mind leave it alone? Then in the same way, receptive to the body sensations, the experience of sitting. And not emphasizing the unpleasant sensations over the neutral and pleasant sensations, but instead taking in the whole experience of sitting, the full range of sensation now. Everything's included. So in a sense, sitting right in the middle of this experience, this physicality of the body, 
Sitting is like this. Sensations are being known. Can this be okay? Letting them be. We begin to cultivate this continuity of mindful awareness. So not forgetting the experience of the body sitting. And if you work more specifically with the breath as your anchor, then just feel, begin to feel the movement of the breath in the body, wherever that's clear for the mind. Aware, of course, of the breath coming in. And then aware of the breath going out, the actual sensations. No matter the particular anchor, cultivating a continuity of mindful awareness, be willing to begin again and again. And when strong distractions arise, then allow that distraction to be the object of awareness, the meditation object, for enough time to observe how it goes away on its own.
connecting and sustaining attention mind is recognizing the breath or whatever it is that's being known. Recognize and then accepting, allowing it to be. Being interested, so not forgetting. And non-attachment, non-clinging, letting things unfold. And remember to notice the emotional quality of the mind from time to time. To include that in the field of awareness.
and in doubt, begin by recognizing how it is or what's being known. What is the mind knowing now? So consciously recognize, oh, this is being known. And then practicing accepting, practicing being interested in what's being known. Practicing letting it be, non-attachment, non-identification. doesn't need to be seen as personal. It's just something being known.
the last couple of minutes emphasizing non-clinging. So we're allowing the experience of the body, the sensations to come and go, the experience of the mind, the thoughts and images come and go. Allowing everything to move. (coughs) Being aware that it's like this. You want to stretch out your legs a little bit if you need to, so you're comfortable. And we'll take some time now, and people might have some reflections from the last week of practice or your sit tonight. As I've been mentioning the last couple of weeks, it's really nice to hear from people what's been working, what you're learning in your practice, felt what has felt good in your practice. It's also very useful for people to hear what's been challenging, 
where you're confused or have uh, doubt. And of course, any specific questions you have about the instructions or just more generally this practice, it's a good time to bring them up. So let's come to mind. Yeah. I tried hearing tonight and spoke to someone hearing this anger, and I found it really difficult. Um, I, I just felt really sad and I get really lost in it because I hear, like, I'm louder than your home is. I'm over here, whatever. And then other little sounds, and I started focusing on them kind of bouncing around, and then before I knew that, I'd be lost somewhere completely different. Uh, and kind of halfway through, I ended up kind of comparing with that as my anger. Yeah, but somewhat, to some degree at least, it's a matter of personality, and some personalities, some minds, just will find it easier with hearing, and and it might be just the right medicine for some people, especially people who tend to be really tight, having... The thing about hearing as an anchor, we're not actually interested in focusing on the specific sounds, but it's more the whole field of hearing as one thing. You know, so we're not trying to isolate or distinguish sound, but just more like resting back in the hearing and just letting the hearing happen. And that can be quite useful for people who tend to be more tight and more controlling because... You can't control hearing. You know, it's, it's in a sense, independent. But with the breath, if you're controlling tight, you can keep bringing a lot of tension as you're uh, reactively or out of habit just controlling it. So keep in mind, like, it's good to shop around a little bit, but then just settle with one that feels good enough. You can work generally with the body or specifically with the sensations of the breath in the body. Both are, of course, being aware of the body. But for some people, the very refined and specific anchor of the breath is just the ticket. For other people, they need a more uh, sort of diffuse anchor, something that moves around, sometimes here, sometimes just feeling the uprightness of the spine, sometimes feeling specific sensations of the body. But what, regardless of the anchor, it's going to be practice. It's not going to be easy necessarily at first because it's not the habit of the mind, one, to pay attention to what's mostly neutral. And it's not the habit of the mind to be continuous in the present moment. The mind's in the habit of getting lost in thought. So there's, don't feel like it's a waste of time to keep bringing the attention back to the breath or back to hearing back to the experience of sitting, goes, you bring it back, it goes, you bring it back. See that as the practice, that willingness to start again. And sometimes when you start again, you have to re-remember why you're doing this. Oh yeah, I'm cultivating a continuity of mindful attention, present moment awareness, where the mind is clear and relaxed, just allowing things to be. That's a different mode. That's not what the mind is useful. So we have to keep at it. Thanks so much for bringing that up. What else comes to mind? What you've been learning? What's been difficult? Yeah, in the corner. Yeah, probably for most people who've had trouble with breathing because of asthma or whatever. Um, 
because there just might be a lot of emotion as soon as you bring your attention to the breath. And that happens generally for people where the it uh, can be almost like a claustrophobic feeling. You know, the breathing's fine until you pay attention to it, and then it's not fine at all. So if that's the case for you, one thing is just not to use the breath. The other is to feel the body generally, the, the body sitting generally. And you might notice that when you're not specifically focusing on the breath, you can be aware of the coming and going of the breath in a more relaxed, less reactive way. And then after a while, you might be able to give your attention fully to the breath. So sometimes I, I tend to be a controlling type just by personality. And it hasn't been, generally, it hasn't been easy for me to use the breath as an anchor. But sometimes when I have been using it as an anchor, like I'll feel my breath here, but I would actually focus on the sits bones making contact with the cushion. And there, in the periphery, my mind would know the breath coming and going, feel that movement of the abdominal wall. But because I wasn't specifically focusing on the abdominal wall and the movement there, I could know it continuously to some degree. So we have to be a little bit skillful about how we find an anchor to support this present moment awareness, the continuity of present moment awareness. Because that... As a meditator, that is the first task. We have to break the mind's addiction to thinking. And, you know, you could just be aware that thinking is just thinking, and that's a useful strategy for some people. But it's very easy to get lost in thought, and without an anchor then, it's unlikely we're going to notice that we're lost in thought. So we start to sit, we're aware of the mind, we're aware of the mind thinking, and then in the next moment... We're lost in thinking, and then 30 minutes later, the bell rings, and we've been thinking the whole time. But uh, ultimately, mindfulness of thinking is a very uh, powerful anchor, or not so much mindfulness of thinking, but mindfulness of the mind itself, whether it's thinking or not. So it's almost like the space of the mind is the object of awareness. And sometimes the space of the mind is relatively quiet, Sometimes it's relatively stirred up. Sometimes it's quite beautiful. Sometimes it's quite narrow and tight and oppressive. But the mind is aware of the mind and aware of what the mind is doing. So yeah, work with the whole body or maybe even sound as your anchor. Yeah. Yeah. So if you didn't hear her question, she said there's an app that has different bells and maybe even at random intervals or something like that. I mean, you can definitely get apps that will ring it at the beginning and the end of the sit. But even there's music, meditative music, and sounds like an app, too, that will create some interesting sounds, probably beautiful. And, of course, when something interesting arises, it's relatively easy for the mind to be attentive. You know, if we were sitting and uh, in a beautiful forest glen or next to a beautiful forest pool and there are all kinds of animals coming and going, we might be able to be very 
attentive in a continuous way there, we might get attached, but the continuity of awareness would be pretty good. Whether we could stay relaxed and not get too excited or fearful is another question. But the, the thing is, the mind then gets dependent on interesting things happening. So one of the reasons that we use, often we use uh, neutral objects, is that the mind's not dependent on particular conditions. Like what we learn with neutral objects, we can work with any objects. So that kind of meditation is fine to do from time to time. And uh, just like anything you really like, is that it can be a very useful meditation object. And it's useful to practice all through the day. So in those times when you're listening to interesting music or walking through the woods or doing something that's pleasurable, then by all means, cultivate mindfulness. But it's also useful to take up a training where the mind isn't, we're not cultivating a dependence on what's pleasant. Because what we'd like to do is we'd like the mind to begin to gravitate towards a pleasantness that's unconditioned. Right? There's the conditioned pleasantness of those nice sounds of the bell, but there's a more subtle and much more resonant unconditioned pleasant, uh, pleasure, which is the pleasure of the mind itself when it's not in a reactive mode. And that... Uh, is not so easy to notice when the mind is being drawn out into interesting sounds, interesting thoughts, interesting sensations. Like, we could practice mindfulness getting a massage. It's a great place to practice being mindful. But then you're dependent on getting a $85 massage, you know, every time you want to calm your mind. That gets expensive. <laughs> Other thoughts? Yeah, see your name? Uh, Christine. So, meditating tonight, I had something happen that I hadn't happened before. I was thinking about something pleasant. And usually, when I'm thinking, and then I come back to thinking about breathing or whatever, it doesn't really matter. I think that I got kind of mad at myself because I like what I'm thinking about. And that ended up happening to me before. And I was kind of like, oh, I don't want to go back to just thinking about. Yeah. So if you didn't hear, is it Christine or Christina? Christine was saying that she was thinking about something that was pleasant, pleasant, and then she realized she was thinking about something pleasant and brought her attention back to the breath, to the present moment, and uh, felt disappointed. Now, in that moment, ideally, we would be interested in the disappointment as the present moment object, because that's probably what was predominant in that first moment at least. Oh, the mind is disappointed. This experience of disappointment is being known. It's like this. Disappointment is a very interesting experience to know. It may not be pleasant, but it's interesting when the mind is disappointed. And then feeling that longing, right? So there's probably some disappointment, some longing, and all of that could be seen you're recognizing it, you're accepting it, you're interested in it, 
and not attach. That's a nice way to remember the practice. It's an acronym that makes it easy. RAIN, R-A-I-N. So, like, something like that's happening, and you, you have this wholesome motivation to practice. So, what would the Buddha do? And then you can just remember this shortcut. Okay, recognize what's actually true here. Okay, there's disappointment. Okay, recognize that. Disappointment. Can this be accepted? Can the heart relax with this, allow it to be? That's the A. Can the heart, can the mind be interested in this? So, like getting close. And it's not so much that you're trying to lean into it, but it's like you're allowing that disappointment to sort of express itself, to be felt in the body, to be seen in the mind. Oh, this is what the experience of disappointment is. Oh, this is the longing to go back to that pleasant thought. Oh. And then non-attachment. This is the more subtle, this you can't make happen, non-attachment. But you're on the lookout for non-clinging, non-attachment, like seeing that disappointment, seeing the longing to go back, seeing the boredom with the breath or whatever you experience being with the breath, seeing all of that as a impersonal, natural happening. So Christine was doing that. Were you doing the disappointment? No, there was just disappointment there. Were you doing the boredom with the breath? No, there was just boredom there. And remember, you said something like thinking about the breath or thinking about the room, but we're not thinking about the room because that would be boring. <laughs> we're just being present isn't actually boring. Generally, if there's boredom, it's because we're not paying attention to the present moment. If we're just repeating an idea in our mind over and over again, I'm paying attention to my breath. I'm paying attention to my breath. That's deadening. And so it would be very appropriate to feel deadened by that activity and to be doubtful like that would ever lead anywhere because it won't lead anywhere. But it's very different than uh, saying, oh, I'm just sitting here breathing, I'm just sitting here breathing, than to just be with the breath. It's like the breath itself is actually wild. It's like being in the boundary waters in a place you've never been before. That breath, that natural phenomena of the breath coming in or the breath going out has never been experienced before. And the only thing that makes it seem boring or insignificant is because we're more in our thought about the breath than we are in the natural unfolding of the breath. Now the next time before rushing back to the breath when you're there thinking about something really pleasant, in that first moment you're aware, don't immediately... Like, like you're scolding yourself, rush back to your anchor because you've been bad. Take a moment and just notice that experience of having been just immersed in that very pleasant thought. Oh, this is pleasantness. Because if you see the pleasantness for what it actually is, it's not so hard to put it down. But if we rush away too soon, we imagine that pleasantness was gold. It isn't actually gold. It's just pleasantness, you know. So you really want to see it in an impersonal way. You want to recognize it. You want to accept the pleasantness. You want to be interested in it for a moment and see it in a non-attached way. It's just pleasantness. And it will probably already be gone. It's, it's not even like you're going back to the breath, but that pleasant thought has disappeared because generally thoughts go come and go very quickly. So if we have a moment of seeing it, but we're not feeding it, we're not identified with it, it will just go away on its own. And then we just, are, we just got taught a very important lesson, which is things are very ephemeral. 
it seems substantial because we weren't paying attention. If we pay attention and we realize that whole construction, as pleasant as it was, was very ephemeral. And it's stressful to try to keep it going. You've got to keep whipping it up, you know, keep bringing in the images, rethinking the thoughts. And it's really, when you're clear, when the mind is present, it's not worth it. It's only when the mind is not present that it seems, you know, worth it. Yes? Yeah, it's an occupational hazard of more experienced meditators because generally in meditation it's easier to master the skill of tranquility than it is to master sort of right effort and joy and investigation. You know, uh, I don't know if you've studied, but in the Buddhist tradition there's the seven factors of awakening. And this is a list uh, teaching that the Buddha used quite often in terms of it's just a model or a description of the wholesome state of balance. And there are three energizing qualities and three tranquilizing qualities. So the energizing qualities are energy or effort, rapture, and investigation. And the three tranquilizing qualities are tranquility or serenity, one-pointedness or concentration, and equanimity. And so, if you either have a natural talent for samadhi, or you've been at it for a while, your mind learns how to be steady and use different objects of the present moment to steady the attention, to collect the mind. But if you don't develop the active part of the practice, the right effort, the investigation or interest, and the joy then what happens is the mind gets really quiet, really still, and it's very easy to slip into either unconsciousness, actual sleep, even sitting straight up, or even more easy to slip into a trance-like state. That often, these states are often very pleasant, and it, after the end of the set, you feel rested, because relative to a busy neurotic life, it's, uh, it's relatively wholesome. But you never learn anything in those states. When the mind is really dull or in a trance or un- unconscious, you might get rest, and that might be good, but you're never going to get uh, deep insight. So it's really important then to reflect on these seven qualities. The seventh is mindfulness. Mindfulness is what lets us know whether the tranquilizing qualities are too strong or too weak, or the energizing qualities are too strong, too weak. I mean, generally, you, you can't get too much of either side, but it has to be in balance with the other side. So it's the same way. If you have too much of the energizing qualities and not enough of the tranquilizing, the whole system gets restless and, and uh, out of balance that way. So you might kiss in a very... It doesn't have to be a big adjustment. Just like in that sense, right when you're beginning to feel a little on the sluggish side, or sliding into sort of trance-like states where there's some steadiness, but you're not really aware of what you're aware of, then activate effort, like to actually connect. This is where recognizing that part of the acronym is really important. Like, what is the mind knowing? What is the mind recognizing right now? Even if it's dullness, you recognize, you know that the mind is knowing dullness. And, like, interest, investigate, like, what is the quality of this dullness? Is it pleasant or unpleasant? 
how do I know it's pleasant? What is it about this experience of dullness that I'm recognizing that's pleasant? How do I know it's pleasant? How does the mind know that it's pleasant? Or how does the mind know that it's unpleasant in this moment? Is it increasing or is it decreasing? Where is it felt in the body? Does it have a location or is it equally everywhere in the body, this feeling of dullness? So that's the investigation. And then that leads to rapture, like the, the sort of application of mind and the continuity of mind. It will start to bring up rapture, like the brightness of the mind. And then if that's too much, then you can emphasize the tranquility. But initially you want to develop your skill with this other side of the equation. Because that's what we're doing in the practice over the years, is we're developing the skill of tranquilizing the mind and developing the skill of brightening the mind. And we just keep amping both up until you can just use your imagination, a mind that is completely tranquil, steady, unshakable in its tranquility, but bright, not missing a thing. But that brightness isn't tight in any way because of the tranquility. So the tranquility brings a full release, a, a, a full expression of ease through the body and mind. Like everything that's tight has melted. You know, when you get a really good massage, or you've been in the sauna, and then the cold water, in the sauna, in the cold water, have you ever done that? And then you just, the whole mind, body, just like, ah, and like mush. So that even more profound than that, the tranquility can be. But at the same time, the mind is, like a clear bell, bright, interested, joyful. And that is really, that's the state of mind. Not only is that a really functional state of mind to live our life out of, but that state of mind leads to insight. The mind, a mind like that, sees things it hasn't seen before about the nature of things. Most of the suffering in the world arises because we're misperceiving, we're not actually aware of what's at play. And so our action, our response, isn't based on the way it is, it's based on the way we think it is. But when the mind's in that beautiful balance, the mind doesn't miss anything. And so it starts responding with so much more skill, and it understands things even beyond what we can comprehend at this point. And just to sort of set it up, One of the pervasive misperceptions is the sense of being apart or separate. And of course, all of our religious traditions, Buddhism and all the others, say that's not the way it is, actually. But it is our pervasive perception that I am apart. Isn't that what you're perceiving right now? I'm here, you're over there. And rarely do we experience a different perception. But that perception arises only because the mind is superficial. So the difference between us and a saint is, a saint, she's able, has that capacity to bring the mind into balance, and that balanced mind perceives things as they actually are. You could say perceives things not in terms of duality. And then that changes one's view. So instead of trying to get the right belief, like believing in non-duality, which is a sticky thing to do, we're trying to affect the perceptual mechanism of the mind. Basically cleaning out the cobwebs, shining it up, strengthening it, stabilizing it, so it can actually see things as they are, and then 
all of our understanding, our view, will become transformed because mindful presence allows the mind to see things clearly. So if things, if there really is this sort of non-separation, this, this absence of self-centered drama, then it will be realized. And then from ever on, when self-centered drama arises, we won't be so confused because we'll know that's not self. That's just that habit that has been triggered and the mind won't identify with it. And it will arise and cease and it won't get acted out, won't be proliferated upon. And there will be a lot of freedom. The freedom from self-centered dramas. So I didn't get a chance to talk about walking meditation, but did I send it out last week, the walking instructions? Okay, so you have that. You can the good instructions from Gil Fronstall. And next week when you come back, share some experiences with walking. So I recommend that find a place at home or if you have a, a place outside that you'll be, you know, not too embarrassed to walk back and forth. <laughs> Ideally, it's better than walking around a lake or walking along a trail. It's better to find a lane to walk back and forth. Because then if your mind spaces out and you start to think, when you get to the end of your lane, that will be your reminder, oh yeah, I'm doing walking meditation. And you can let go of whatever your thoughts were involved in. Notice that you're standing. Notice that you're turning around. Notice that you're standing. And then begin the walking. Awareness of the lifting. Awareness of the placing. Step by step. Using the physicality of walking as your anchor. And then if you get caught up in an emotional or a mental storm, some thought comes in, some worry, some pleasant thought, like Christine was talking about, then just stop walking wherever you are in your lane and just let your mind take that distraction as your meditation object so you're clearly aware and you're allowing it to be. You're not investing in it, but you're not pushing it away. And you want to see that little drama cease on its own without anybody having to do anything. Just by being present with it, everything comes, everything goes. Once it's gone and the mind's back into balance, continue with the walking practice. So a long hallway will work. If you have a bigger room that you can, not too cluttered, you can do it in that room. Sidewalk out in your yard or quiet place, even if people are around. And if you don't have anything like that, you can even do it just walking along the river or walking around a lake. But then you just need to punctuate it. You know, maybe set your little alarm to ring every minute. Because otherwise, after a few minutes, you just start thinking and you won't notice. And then you'll be around the lake and you might have had a nice walk. But you wouldn't have learned much about walking meditation. So we need to leave it here. I'll see everybody next Tuesday. Take care, everyone.